seated. And I'd ask if you would please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. It's a real privilege to be with you today. If you don't know me, I'm uh, Nathan Curry. I'm the associate pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And uh, I'm just overjoyed to see so many familiar faces and catch up with you and find out what's going on in your life. But I'm even more overjoyed to see not familiar faces as your church is being blessed and as it grows and as God uh, leads you. It's uh, just a joy for me to, to see how God is at work among you. I've been preaching through the book of James, and James is this book where sometimes we're afraid to look at the place of works and faith, and how are we to understand James with some tough sayings about being justified by works, and there's a lot that we've had to unpack over the months and months that I've been preaching through it, but suffice it to say that the book of James fits perfectly together with Romans and Galatians, Paul's theology, Jesus' theology, the rest of the Bible. It belongs there and it fits because what James does, it's kind of like the wisdom of the New Testament, like the Proverbs of the New Testament. How do you live out the faith that God gives you? In the first chapter, it talks about you have been born again. You have been given new life. This is a work of God in you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. And in light of being born again, what should your life look like? How should you then bear fruit in your life? And that is what James has been walking through. And as we get to chapter 4, as he's wrapping up the last, let's say, uh, verses 13 to 17, when we hit about the middle of chapter 4, James is laying out this battle that's going on, this, this battle plan, in fact, to how to fight pride in our lives. Pride is this ever-present enemy. We can't shake it because it's me, myself, and I is at the center of pride. And so he talks about how we can be called by grace-enabled humility. And, and he fleshed this out earlier in the chapter in terms of how do we speak? How do we not judge one another with our words? And then what that proper submission to the true lawgiver and judge really is. And how we are to be at peace with our brothers as we live in this body of Christ. So today James turns to how we are to think about the future, how we are to plan and it's an area that we're susceptible to pride again. We're susceptible to our own will and our own desires alone. So as we submit to the Lord and we resist the devil, as we draw near to him, that, that's the battle plan that he's been laying, on, laying out for us. It's with repentance and faith that we now consider a humble heart towards planning and how prideful heart is presumptuous in its planning. So follow along as I read James 4, verses 13 to 17. This is God's holy and inspired word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, 
for him it is sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. You've told us not to trust in our own selves, but to trust in you and lean not on our own understanding, that in all our ways we should acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. Lord, we have sight that can't see beyond today, beyond this very moment, but you have the sight that goes into the distant past and into the distant future, and you know all things. Lord, as we sit at your feet, as we listen to your word, would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us and comfort us? Wherever you find us today, Lord, may your spirit minister to us in just the specific way that you can. We thank you for that powerful work of your Holy Spirit that we depend on so much. Open our eyes, open our ears to see your truth and invigorate us and enliven us to live out that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are two types of people in this world. There are people like myself who think about the future, who make plans, who know how to use a Google Calendar, who write out goals and objectives and put those pen to paper and think about how you're going to structure your life so that you'll actually end up somewhere that you intend to go. And then there's the rest of you that drive us crazy because you kind of say, que sera, sera, and you kind of wisp through life like that little uh, dandelion seed, and wherever the wind takes you, you're content, and you go, and everything's fine, and everything's rosy, and everything's wonderful, and your life would completely fall apart if it weren't for us planning behind the scenes and making sure you get. Have you experienced that on a family vacation lately? The planner types in you, in your family, have this all structured and figured out where we're going to be, what we're going to do, and the rest of the family is just kind of like, oh, what are we doing today? And they just kind of go along. Now, each of these groups of people, no matter which one you are, were susceptible to some sin tugging away at our hearts. We're, we're susceptible to falling into the ditch that's on either side when it comes to planning. And so I want to see the corrective here that James has for us. I think one of the most pivotal times in our lives is the decisions that we make once we get through high school. Remember, you know, grade 8 to grade 9, not a whole lot of plans, 9 to 10, 10 to 11, you're pretty much just planning what electives you're going to take. Do I take art? Or do I take music? Which language am I going to do? Not so big, huge decisions going on, but when you get out of that junior year into that senior year, I wanted to do it right, right? A planner. I wanted to make sure I took those aptitude tests, met with my guidance counselor, had everything planned out and figured out, and I looked at the scores, the results, and in counseling with my guidance counselor, it looked like I'd be geared for an engineering, medical, something with numbers. I knew I didn't want to be around people. Just put me in a cubicle. Just don't... Why are you laughing? I mean, it, something happened here, right? And so I had it all figured out. I was going to do aeronautical engineering. I was going to go to the University of Syracuse. I was going to kind of go where my dad, who was a two-year degree in chemi chemistry, uh, I could get that engineering degree that he didn't get. And so all those plans were coming into place. I had visited school. And then the summer year, going in, summer going into my senior year, uh, I was at church camp like I am every year went to church camp, and our cabin had a bunch of seniors in that 
those who uh, were going to go into their senior year, and our cabin counselor, who was one of the pastors that knew me, uh, had slotted a time for each of the guys in the cabin to go and meet with him and to talk with him about what we're doing in life, what our future was. And I remember sitting down with him, and he was kind of questioning me, asking me, and I was laying it all out for him, exactly what I had planned to do. And he said to me, Nathan, have you considered what God wants for your life? Wow. I, it kind of hit me. I, I knew he wasn't saying, Nathan, you should be a pastor. I, what he was saying was, you've done a lot of work here, Nathan. You, you've really thought this out. But have you ever even considered that God might have a plan for your life? I hadn't. I think as a, even a Christian kid growing up in a Christian home, I felt like that was church life, but my career, my future, my schooling, th that was on me. And I had this divided view of how to make plans. And in, these plans didn't really involve God until, bam, I'm struck in the face by a pastor who says, I should consider what God's plan is. So here we are in James chapter 4, and I think this passage helps us so that even if we're Christians, that we would avoid the trap of planning like practical atheists. Planning like God doesn't really factor in or exist. So let's look at how proper planning requires a humble submission to God's will. In verse 13, we see that presuming you can predict or control the future is actually evil arrogance. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Verse 16 then. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now we have to understand commerce in the time of James involved how are you going to make money? Most were agrarian, most were sustenance farming, but if you could put together a plan where you could take your goods and go to various locations, you could bring what they didn't have and you can make money off of bringing your goods. The travel routes were developing under the Roman Empire, and various ways for you to make more and more money became available. And so certainly, uh, the audience that James was speaking to must have had people who, who understood how to make a buck, how to go out and make plans to make profit. And it seems like they weren't considering the risk, weren't really considering uh, where does the will of God factor into this? In fact, if you remember, Jesus said in Luke 10, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. You can't just say, I'm going to go to this town. Jesus gave stories that were evidently true to their reality that you're not guaranteed to make it to that town. There are risks. There are unexpected things. There are dangers that are out there. I wonder if James had in mind the parable his brother Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 12 where he told them a parable saying that the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones 
And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Yeah, I'm just here to make a buck. I'm, I'm making more and more and more but not considering God, not considering being rich toward God was a parable that Jesus said. Now, planning is not ruled out in Scripture altogether. Presumptuous planning is. Let me, let me see if I can make a distinction by one person's definition. A plan is a flexible, detailed design for action based on careful consideration of all the facts. A plan is a flexible, detailed design for action based on a careful consideration of all the facts. Presumption, on the other hand, is a superficial design for action built on partial knowledge, inadequate objectives, and questionable motives. It's a design for action built on partial knowledge, inadequate objectives, and questionable heart motives. So James is denouncing, in no uncertain terms, this presumptuous planning. Here's some distinctions, I think, between proper planning and presumptuous planning. Planning recognized the uncertainties of life. You're a mist, as verse 14 says. You don't know that you appear for a little time and then you vanish. None of us know how long we have. Planning takes into account the uncertainties of life. Planning, but presumption ignores them. Uh, Planning recognizes the brevity of life, but presumption ignores it. Planning considers the will of God, and presumption ignores it. Planning is rational and humble. Presumption is irrational and, in fact, boastful. So sometimes we like to minimize this presumptuous planning by just calling it uh, confidence. Just like, I, I, I know my mind, I know my thoughts, I know what I plan to do, and I'm just going to work it out. And it becomes almost a mark or badge of honor to have that kind of confidence. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, cower and and fret and always be worried that, you know, how is this going to turn out? I don't know. What should I do? That, That ditch is over here, but the other ditch of presumptuous planning is a real danger to us. Is it a danger in our culture? Maybe in our more affluent culture? maybe in a place where we have more to plan with and plan for. Uh, maybe it's looked upon in our culture as something that you've got to do to get up the ladder, what you have to do to be successful. And so this kind of confidence ends up becoming more a confidence in ourself, and it flies in the face of humility, of humble reliance on God. It's truly prideful presumption. And look at the warning again in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is not good. No, all such boasting is evil. You know, we don't call things evil very much anymore, do we? James is really clear. When you act in this way, presumptuous planning, this prideful arrogance is evil. Wow. If I know something's evil, do I get as close to it as I can without... No, I'm going to give that a wide berth. I'm going to make sure that 
however I'm planning, doesn't look anything like that. Well, how do we do that? I mean, if you're in the ditch over here where you're worried, fearful, concerned, don't know about the future, not planning for it, you can benefit from this. Listen in. But if you're over here and you got it all figured out, you got plans into the distant, distant future, and you are counting on everything working out the way that you have planned it to be, then we need to consider God's will. How do we understand God's will? Because this is exactly where James points us. This is the, this is the key command in the section. Verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. Maybe, maybe this verse doesn't help us as much because we got a minimized view of God's will, of God's plan. Maybe you're like Nathan as a junior in high school, and you are so fixated and simply mindful of what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and you haven't factored in the will of God. How expansive the will of God. How powerful the will of God is. How complete the will of God is. It's no small thing, and we see it from cover to cover in the Scriptures. Now, we need to distinguish between God's decretive will and God's directive will. What He decrees is going to come to pass. What He's directed us in is what He's revealed to us, is what He commands us to do. God's decretive will are all things that He's ordained to pass, and He works out in providence. God's directive will are His principles for living that are expressly, expressly stated can be derived from Scripture. My favorite verse to understand this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And you can remember it because that's the 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Decretive will, secret. We, we don't know it in the mind of God. The directive will, this is what I've revealed. It's for you. It's for your children. Do it. Live it. Obey it. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question number seven is, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby He, for His own glory, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever is a pretty big word. It means whatsoever. It means everything. Well, how does God execute His decrees? He executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Well, what is providence? Because I think that narrows in on where the will of God, His decree being worked out in here and now, how that affects our planning in a real practical way. What is God's providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. I memorized that when I was a little kid in, in, in junior church. I had no idea how to apply it throughout high school, it seems, right? Because if I would have taken into account what this catechism points us to and the scriptural truths that it summarizes, I'd have a different game plan, a different approach to planning altogether than what I had. His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, all their actions. Let's look at some scriptures that show us 
what is God sovereign over? Because I think we need to maximize our view of God's will, God's control, God's plan. And I'm going to give you a bunch of verses. If you miss here or don't feel like you've got to take down all sorts of notes, email me and I will send you this list. What is God sovereign over? He's sovereign over salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in the beloved. It's His will, our salvation. He is sovereign over our sanctification. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over our hair. Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So careful of every minute detail. For some of you, less detail than at other times in your life. He is sovereign over, okay, let's just say it, all things. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. If He weren't in control of it, it would fall apart. Isaiah 4, 45 Isaiah 45, 7 to 9 says that he's sovereign over bad things. Calamity, in fact. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's hard. It's hard to wrestle with that reality. But I've got to say it's real because God says it's real. God is in control of even the bad things that happen in life. He's in control of, his will extends to even seemingly random events, the casting of a lot or a die. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no luck with God. Please don't go around saying just, that was lucky, or I'm so lucky, or that was, unless you're playing pool with your daughter and she makes this crazy shot yesterday that just, that was lucky. Well, okay. That was God's will, too, I guess. That was in his plan. Job 42, verse 2. Do you know what it says God is sovereign over? All things. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing. And as it pertains to what James is talking about, whether you go to this city and you say, I'm going to work and I'm going to trade and I'm going to make money, remember what first. Chronicles 29, 11 and 12 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. And note this, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. 
Your financial outcome is part of God's plan. It's in His hands. Does that give you confidence and hope and, and encouragement because you're concerned, you're fretful, you haven't made much plans, and you're just like, but God is sovereign over that. Or does that say, make you scratch your head and say, well, I probably re- need to re- rethink this and really consider God's will and God's plan and God's purpose because I haven't even considered him being in control over or having a way in this. God's will has been mistakenly understood to be some mysterious dot that if I don't do everything exactly right and make every single choice the perfect way, then I will miss God's will because it's this little tiny dot. And and really, I don't think that's the best way to understand God's will. Uh, God's will can best be understood as His directive will being almost like a box framed by the Word of God defining what is the moral will of God. And everything within God's will, moral will, is an option for you. We don't know what it is. It's his, it's his secret will. It's in there. Who you're going to marry isn't revealed in the Word of God. But the type of person you should marry is defined very clearly. Christians, you are to marry in the Lord. So we can find God's will as it is framed up for us, but that exact will of God, don't fret over that. Those are the secret things that belong to God. Give those cares to God. Pray about them. They're His concern as much as they are your concern, but seek the Lord for guidance. What about open doors and closed doors? This is interesting because in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul comes to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. This open door seems like it was opened for me in the Lord. God opened a door. Paul didn't go through it. Did he miss the dot? Open doors are simply open doors, an opportunity to make a decision. If they're like mysteriously opened or, wow, that seems amazing, that doesn't give you any more warrant to say that must be God's will than some other door. Uh, Jay Adams uh, spoke about this subject of finding God's will. He says, Circumstances, often referred to as opened and closed doors, only provide occasions, not guidance, for basic decision-making. They do, however, open, often provide help for making preferential decisions among several good when you are in God's option box. But circumstances won't help put you there. Only biblical principles will do that. Frame the box with what God says are the biblical principles and then find an open door. Maybe barge down a closed door. Those are just the circumstances that you're facing. But as you understand God's will, as it expands for you, do you see how we should consider God's will? When we do that, we can rest in God's sovereignty and obey Him and follow Him. I think verse 17 just kind of encapsulates that for us. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Now with James, sometimes it's hard to know his connection between different thoughts as he goes along. It seems like it just kind of dropped in there. If you know it's sin, don't do it, right? But I think it relates back 
to what he's been talking about, planning with God in mind. Douglas Moo commented on this section. He said uh, that James has urged us to take the Lord into consideration in all our planning. We therefore have no excuse in this matter. We know what we're to do. To fail now to do it, James wants to make clear, is a sin. You know that God wants you to factor Him and His will into your planning. If you disregard this, it's sin. It's actual evil arrogance to disregard God in this planning. He's saying it's not enough just to acknowledge intellectually, to admit that you're not the king, that you don't know the future. It's not enough that you intellectually grasp that God is completely sovereign over all in His will. It really comes down to what are you going to do about that reality. When the rubber hits the road, how are you going to now think about the future? How are you going to plan? Are you going to plan with God's will in mind? You know, there's that, uh, there, there's a, a, a phrase that was used in times past in letter writing. This is where you take a piece of paper and you put words on it and you put it in the mail or you send it by a courier to another place with often updates on your life, what's going on, and what you plan to do. And so often, uh, people who wrote these letters would describe, I intend to visit you when the moon is on the 4th, and I will be there at such and such a place, Deo Valente. That means Lord willing. God willing. If the Lord wills it. And I think it was, it was putting into practice this very principle that, that I should plan and make those plans known, but make it also known that God's will will be done, that it's dependent on God's will. That's not a cop-out. You know, I hope to come, Lord willing, but I have no intention of coming. Don't use it that way, Okay. Deo Valente isn't like a magical phrase that you put at the end of everything so you have a cop-out for when you don't show up when you intended to, okay? I just added that one for no extra charge. The, the idea of just following God's will and making God's will as central helps us to really live out what James says in chapter 1. If you know that God's will is what is important in your planning, if you're a hearer of that, but you're not a doer of that, there's a problem. But when, he el- but when he does say, if you are a hearer who does and acts on what he hears, the promise of James 1.27 is that, of 1.26, you will be blessed in your doing. God's going to bless the doing, bless the plans if you're a hearer of God's word hearer that he is in control, he is planning. You see, when I was in high school, I had my whole life planned out. I had written my autobiography, the, the, the self-telling of my story, and this is how it was all going to play out. I don't think God wants us to write an autobiography for our lives. I think there is a biographer for your life and for your life and for my life. It's just not you. Uh, Paul Tripp has a series of devotions called New Morning Mercies. And the week that I was preparing to preach this the first time, it just kind of, bam, laid on my uh, Kindle for me to read. 
And let me just conclude with his thoughts on this. I hope it encourages you. He says, remind yourself again today that you have a story, but it's not an autobiography. There is an author of your story, but the author's not you. You've been welcomed into an epic drama, but you'll never be the hero. You've been given a kingdom, but you will never be its monarch. The price of your admission into this story was the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. But he conquered death so that by grace he could establish his story in your life. Today he reigns on on your behalf and will continue to do so until the last enemy of your soul and of his kingdom has been defeated. Then he will summon you into the final chapter, a chapter that never ends, where peace and righteousness will reign forever and ever. This is the story of your faith and your life. The story of this redemptive, eternal plan is now your biography. Why would you ever want an autobiography when you could have the story God himself has written? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the marvelous author of such an epic drama, the drama of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Lord, that that we get to play a role in that, a bit part in that, because you have written us into the story is such an amazing privilege, a humbling reality that you have a wonderful plan and you have made us to be part of it. Lord, I pray that we would be humble servants and not kings over our kingdoms, that we would submit to you in all things, that we would say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the guidance of your word, the directions of your word, that you haven't left us to fly blind, but that you have given us the truth of your word as a lamp and a light to our path. Lord, we seek your direction, but give us first the right attitude, humble hearts, reliant on you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.